0: Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. Man, after that time of worship, we could just pack up and be done because that was awesome. Awesome. Also, it's already 1150. So we got work to do. Let's get after it. So excited to dig into God's word today. My name is Taylor. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet or you're new here at Harvest, I'm the worship pastor. And as we continue in our series that we've been going through today, we turn to a new book of the Bible, the message from the prophet Malachi, everyone's favorite Italian prophet. Thanks to the miracle of science, we actually have a photo (laughs) that perfectly depicts what he looked like. There you have it. My wife begged me not to tell that joke, but I've told it every single service, full send. What better way for us to start our time in God's word? Now we're ready. We're ready to, to read the Bible. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi, not Malachi, and we'll get there in just a bit. If you're looking for the book, it might be easiest just to go to the the Gospels, the book of Matthew, and turn left because it's the last book of the Old Testament. So before we jump in, just a little bit of context because the last three weeks we've been studying the book of Haggai, right? The the, the message of the book of Haggai was this uh, charge to rebuild the temple. They had stopped. Pastor Dave preached a few weeks ago about prioritizing the pursuit of the presence of God to rebuild the temple. And there was also this promise of a, of a future kingdom, a new flourishing kingdom with a greater glory, with the presence of God, and it, but it required obedience and repentance on the part of God's people. And that brings us to the book of Zechariah, which is between Haggai and Malachi. And we don't have time to really study through that whole book, but just a quick summary. Ultimately, where it picks up is that the people of Israel, they have uh, uh, taken the message of Haggai. They, they began to rebuild the temple. And in fact, they're close to being done with rebuilding it. And in there, again, there's this promise of a future kingdom, a new Jerusalem that is coming with a priest king who will come to reign. But just as Haggai, the promised kingdom requires repentance and obedience on the part of God's people. So that's where we come to the book of Malachi. And again, the people uh, here, they have, they have heeded the message of, of Zechariah. The temple is now finished, it's rebuilt, and, uh, and they're seeking to obey the Lord, to offer uh, worship to him. But the reality is that the future kingdom that was promised still was yet to arrive, and so the people, in the midst of their obedience, the temple's done, but the kingdom's not here, and so they begin to grow discouraged and apathetic, and they begin to compromise. You know, it's easy sometimes to grow apathetic and to compromise when you're in the middle of a journey. When you're you find where you are and where you want to be, it's easy to grow apathetic and give up and compromise. It's a bit like a health journey. Is anyone, you know, on a, on, a, on a health journey or a diet in the room or trying to be healthy? Anyone willing to admit it? Okay, no one in the service. No one at the nine. Grand Haven, they were humble enough to say, yep, I'm on a diet. It's cool. I know you're in the room. It's okay. We're all trying to be healthy. So maybe you're on a health journey. You're trying to eat well. You're trying to exercise. You got goals. But sometimes when you, you see where you are and where you want to be, And the gap that is there, it can be easy to grow apathetic and compromise, give up and say farewell to the diet and binge on Little Caesars or whatever. And on a much grander level, this is where the Israelites find themselves, in the middle of where they are and where they want to be, where God promised them to be, this future kingdom. In a lot of ways, we church as well find ourselves in a similar in between because of the priest king that Zechariah prophesied about, he came and his name is Jesus. And the spirit that at the end of the book of Zechariah, it prophesied that would be poured out on the people of God, that has taken place. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he now dwells in the hearts of believers. But this future promised kingdom, it is still yet to fully come. Jesus came, and he began the work and the building of his kingdom, and he said, the the building of my kingdom is taking place through the church, but the new heavens, the new earth, this great kingdom is yet to come. And it would be easy for us, church, sometimes to grow apathetic and to compromise and to give up because we see where we are in this broken, fallen, sinful world and where we want to be in heaven. And even on a personal level, you know, we we are called sinners saved by grace in Jesus. And there's this promise that at the end of our life that we will be perfect, we will be glorified, we will be just like Jesus, but it can be easy for us sometimes to look at where we are in our sin, in our, in our fallenness, in our depravity, and the gap between there and where we want to be and to grow apathetic and give up. And that's really where the book of Malachi uh, speaks into us, this place. And the theme verse of the book of Malachi is Malachi 3, 7. It says this, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Return. Let revival come. Be a people marked by repentance. Recognize the pathway you've gone down in apathy and compromise and return to the path, to the way, to the things that God has called his people to do. The Israelites but also in turn us, what he's calling us to do. And so in Malachi, the focus, the call to return from the path of apathy and compromise and back to God's way, the focus, the subject, is the the topic, the idea of worship, right? Of course the worship pastor's up there. He's preaching about worship. Did he pick that passage? Did they plan that? No, it kind of just happened, but I'm pretty excited about it, so it's gonna be great. Uh, Our big idea, if you're taking notes, is this. The way that I worship reveals what I think about God. The way that I worship, and and as we talk about this subject, you know, of course what comes to mind a lot with the worship pastor up here too is congregational singing, praise through song, and that is absolutely an application and a focus of this, but it's not the only thing. because when we talk about worship, worship is really our whole entirety of our lives. See, because the way that I worship and fundamentally live says everything about what I believe about God. And so today as we hear from the prophet Malachi and the message from God to the people of Israel. You know, we're going to examine their uh, belief, what they think about God, and how it flows into their worship, the reality that we're going to examine the bad theology they had and how it led to faulty, bad doxology, worship. The, the things that they believed about God that were wrong that led them to worship in a way that was not the way that God intended. But my hope would be that for us, that we wouldn't just uh, uh, point to the Israelites and people thousands of years ago, but we would look internally and ask ourselves what are the lies and the things that I'm believing about God that are not true to his character and are flowing into the way that I live, the way that I worship? And would we receive the invitation to return to worship that God longs for from us? and that our souls long to give, that we have been created and hardwired to exist for the worship and praise and glory of God, and so would we be realigned to that reality. So read with me in verse one. Let's let's jump right into it. Malachi 1.1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I love that word oracle. It's a pretty cool word, isn't it? I like it not just because it kind of sounds nice rolling off the tongue, But the word oracle, what it really means there, uh, there's this intention of burden, a burden, a weight, a heaviness. We know that here at Harvest, right? A lot of times when the word of God goes out, if not every single weekend, that sometimes it can be a hard word, a heavy word, a burden, something that weighs upon us. But my encouragement to you would be just as with the book of Malachi, that burden isn't meant to just make you feel bad about yourself and and add this weight that you carry around, but really the goal is that you'd be convicted and that conviction would lead to response and repentance. Jesus said, my burden is light. And so as the burden of our sin and conviction comes upon us, would we not just leave uh, with it weighing upon us, but would we instead leave with resolve and relief that's found in Christ alone? So let's dig into that oracle. Verse 2, it continues, it says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? And here we say the, see the first you know, you know, bad bit of theology, false belief about the character of God, the first step on the pathway to heartless worship, and it's this question God's love. The Israelites question God's love. God says, I loved you. They say, How? How have you loved us? You see, the Israelites are staring in the face of difficult circumstances of disappointing living, of things going different than they expected. They finished building the temple, but when they finished the construction, the temple was smaller and less nice than they thought it was gonna be. It's kind of like buying a house in the present market. You're really disappointed in what you get for your value. That's where they found themselves. You know, they're no longer in exile. They're not under the, they're not slaves in Babylon. They're back in Israel but they're still facing political oppression. They still have governors and, 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 and uh, you know, forms of politics over them that are, that are lording over them and, and, and telling them what to do. You know They're sitting there being like, God, you, you said there was gonna be your manifest presence in this amazing temple that we would build. Where are you, God? You're not, the, the presence isn't here. You promised this future kingdom. Where's the kingdom? How have you loved us recently, God? Do you ever find yourself doing that questioning God's love in the face of difficult, inconvenient circumstances? God, why don't you love me? God, why'd you let my car break down again? God, why didn't I get that promotion? God, why'd I get let go? God, why can't I find that amazing house? God, why, why can't I find that spouse? God, God, why is my marriage? A disaster. Why, why don't you love me? Why aren't you helping and doing these things that I thought that you promised you would do? I could just be honest in, here in church and say that's something that I struggle with for sure. That in the face of things not going my way, life not going my way, that I could quickly grow discouraged and be like frustrated. God, why don't you love me? Why aren't you, why aren't you doing the thing that I want you to do? Questioning the love of God. How do you love me? And when we ask that question, when they ask this question, God responds to the question of his character. Read with me in verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. They question God's love, and and God God responds and gives evidence to how he loves them, but it's kind of dense, isn't it? It kind of feels heavy-handed against these people, the Edomites, the people of Esau. What's important for us to know as we read this is that the purpose and intention of what God's saying here is to comfort his people, to give them confidence in his love for them. And so he does this by talking about how ultimately he chose them. He chose them as his people. You know, his steadfast love is committed towards them. He is a covenant that he will fulfill with them, that he has chosen them and so the emphasis here is on his choosing of them and not necessarily the rejection of the others. The word hated here even, that's a sign of the Edomites. It's not a statement of animosity, but it's ultimately God's um, rejection because of their sin. In a lot of senses, it's like the idea of predestination. that The emphasis isn't on the rejection, but on his choosing. See, the question is not, how could God choose some people but reject others? The question is, how could a good, holy God choose to love and to save any of us? For we are all fallen, we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous, no, not one. And even though the people that God chose continue to reject and to rebel against them, he chose them. How could God do that? Why did he choose them? Listen, he didn't choose them because Jacob was better than Esau. He didn't choose them because the Israelites are better than the Edomites. Why? Why did God love them? Because of his sovereign grace, because his steadfast, committed love towards them. You know that instead of asking the question, how have you loved me? We should be asking the question, how could you love me? I heard a pastor named Robbie Simon say it that way. That we question God's love. God, why aren't you doing the things that I want you to do or the things that I expected you to do? And it's like, God, how could you love me at all? I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, I'm broken. Why would you reveal your love to me and choose to save me? But they question God's love. Uh, we see the second thing along the pathway towards heartless worship, it's this, if you're taking notes, disregard God's honor. To disregard God's honor. We see this in verse six. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Fear. I love the way that God through the prophet Malachi says it here. We, we disregard his honor. You know, He says, hey, my children, my people, I'm your father. I'm your perfect heavenly father. I've chosen you. I have loved you. I have provided for you. I have protected you. Have you no appreciation for me? Have you no recognition for who I am and what I've done for you? Have you no honor for me? He says from a relational perspective in his love, man, have you no appreciation and respect and honor for my love towards you? So he says that from the relational standpoint, but also in more of an authority, not just a father who's an authority, but, but as, as a master, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm your creator, I made you. I'm the one who put all of this together, breathe life into your lungs. I'm the one who keeps the earth in motion. Have you no fear of me? Have you no regard for how great and glorious I am and the fact that I stand in authority over all things? He's like, do you have a boss? Do you listen to them? Do you do what they ask you to do? Do you, do you honor them? Do you fear them and care what they think? Because I'm the big boss. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Bowser at the end of the Mario game. Just throwing another Mario reference in there. You came for churches for that. He's like, I'm the CEO, I'm the one over it all, and um, you know I think this one is a little more difficult for us because I think if we we're honest in in our culture, you know the view of authority is that really anything in a in a position of authority is inherently bad. But we need to remember that God has placed human authorities in place over us, and that ultimately when we submit to them and everything that isn't sin, we ultimately submit to Him, to our heavenly Father our big boss, God, but I think it's hard, yeah, in our time where, man, we don't even have, we don't have honor or fear or respect for our bosses, so why would we have honor and fear and respect for God? We are quick to disregard his honor. You know, the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but they had no regard for God's honor. They had a low view of God, and we see this clearly in their response to God's indictment. When he says, you don't don't have honor for me, in verse six, we see this, Oh, priests, you who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? Them asking that question, How? It's a little like, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but particularly, you know, in, as a spouse, like um, with me, with my wife, there's sometimes where it's like, Oh man, she seems like she's upset about something. I'm like, Hey, is something wrong? Like, did I do something to hurt you? And she's sitting there being like, Are you seriously asking me that question? How could you not see the ways that you've hurt me and offended me? Right? And God's sitting here being like, you're asking how? Have you dishonored me? Like, seriously, you don't see it? And so so they ask how, and he's like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll tell you clearly. And so we see this next. But maybe in a a serious level, you're asking that question how? I think that's good for us to ask if we're not aware. And, And I'm saying that I believe that many of us disregard the honor of God. And maybe you don't feel like that's true to you. Maybe you're asking, but how? How have I done that? And so as we turn here, I want to provide the answer to that because in the first five verses, we've seen really these two pathways, these beliefs that lead us towards heartless worship, the lies that we wrongly believe about God that bring us to a place of apathy and heartless worship. And the next set of verses, will give the how, we'll give the what, what does heartless worship looks like? What is our activity that flows from misconceived beliefs about the character of God? And so really in the next set of verses, we'll see that heartless worship looks like four things. And the first thing we saw just there in verse six, heartless worship is that I take his name in vain. I take his name in vain. Verse six, God said, you despise my name. The word despise there isn't one of like disgust or again, like hatred, but here it's a low view of God. To despise his name is to view it as, as, as worthless. And it really gets to the heart of the third commandment. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with the 10 commandments. The third one in Exodus 27 says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Not, I don't know about you, but uh, growing up in church, I feel like when I was taught that verse and I heard it, it was like a don't say swear words commandment. Don't say bad words, but that's not what this is saying. And even, you know, I think some of us were taught it was like a specific string of words, like don't use the name of God with a swear word. And it's like, I mean, certainly an application of that is like, hey, hold the way that we use God's name in our speech in high regard, but that's not the essence of what it's getting after. To take the Lord's name in vain, again, that word vain is just like the word despised in Malachi. It's worthless to view God's name as worthless, to take God's name and for it to be worthless. What that means is this. It's, It's to bear the name of God, to say, I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of God. I am his person, but nothing about my life matches up with who God is. Nothing about my life would flow from a person who actually is a person of God, right? Like, I claim to be a Christian. It's there on my Facebook page and my beliefs. I post Bible verses, but nothing else about my life matches up with the message of those verses, with the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because when I understood that, that was, again, talk about oracle and burden, like just really a shift of perspective, understanding like, wow, to take God's name, but for nothing in my life to match up with his name. That's to take his name in vain. It's a bit like this. You know, a few weeks ago, I went out to lunch with a few of uh, our, our pastors, our staff, and as we were coming back from lunch, we were coming south from Norton Shores, and the bridge was still closed. So we were having a debate about what is the right way to merge right at Van Wagner. And I know God's word says that preachers shouldn't bring up uh, fits of controversies in church, but, so I don't want to press in too much, but there was a a variety of opinions in the car. I'm of the mind that there's a dotted line and then there's a solid line. And so to merge before the solid line would fall within the lines of the law, right? It's what some would call the zipper merge, which done well and done right is a work of art. Now, there were some other extreme positions in the car. I won't expose anyone, but Pastor Dave, um, (laughs) you'll be surprised where I'm going with this, though. Pastor Dave was like, you merge like that? Do you have a harvest sticker on your car? Better take that harvest sticker off your car, dude. That's messed up. (laughs) I'm like, what do you mean? How do you merge? Oh, I merge immediately when everyone merges, like, as early as possible. Dude, but I'm doing what's right. I'm I'm following the law. He's like, you might technically be following the law, but I don't know about that, dude. That's not a good look. Take that harp <laughs> sticker off your car. <laughs> and I still hold on to the theology of the zipper merge. But that was an oracle for me. It was a burden. It was convicting. I was like, oh, man, yeah, I've got the church sticker logo on the back of my car. Like, does the way that I drive and carry myself match up with what we believe and say we are as a church and so much more. So this isn't about our church or our reputation, our name, but the name of God. Like, do we claim to be Christians? Do we say like, I am a Christ follower. I believe in Jesus, but it has no effect on our lives because that is to take the name of the Lord, our God in vain, and it is heartless worship. And that's foundational because the rest of the things that heartless worship means flows from a heart, a person who claims the name of God, but is living far from God. And so let's see uh, uh, more things that heartless worship means. Read with me in verse 7. They say, how do you despise my name? God's like, I'll tell you exactly how. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Jump ahead to verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And what this is saying here is that heartless worship means I give my leftovers to God. I give my leftovers to God. You see, for the Israelites, animal sacrifices were a regular practice in their worship. Burnt offerings were made by priests twice a day, and at least three times a year, individuals would bring their animals as a sacrifice to the temple at festivals. And ultimately, the reason they gave animal sacrifices, it was symbolic for what was taking place. In a great resource in ministry called the Bible Project, they said that animal sacrifices were given as symbols for ultimately two things. First, it was a symbol, a reminder of the uh, uh, devastating effects of their sin and selfishness. And secondly, the animal's life was offered as a symbolic substitute. The animal's life is symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover them, a symbol that they were washed clean in forgiveness and purified from their sin. And you would think, what a, what a beautiful thing that's happening. I'm being purified and washed clean, and so I'll bring something that is worthy and honorable and clean and presentable to God as the law commanded them. But instead, the people weren't bringing that, they were bringing diseased, sick, things that no one else would want, things that didn't cost them, right? Worship inherently should cost us something. It's a sacrifice. It's saying I exist for something and someone outside of myself. But they brought their leftovers out of laziness, out of licentiousness, out of half-hearted repentance. And I was trying to think of like a modern example of this that would really help make sense of it for us. And what the Israelites were doing was kind of like, um, you know, there's this page called like Useless Inventions or something like that. Uh, I don't know, it popped up. I saw this uh, video and this picture's from it. This invention, it's kind of like what's taking place here. amazing isn't it the things that people come up with that's a brilliant engineer mind right there and I'm just saying my birthday is coming up in two months so but this is what's playing out here the Israelites they've got their burrito they've got their big old burrito and they're man taking the first bite like the first bite of burrito that's that's good stuff right there and then they're eating most of it and just out of the bottom going into a taco shell the burrito juice There are a few things more gross in life than someone's burrito juice it's like all right hey god here's here's my taco full of burrito juice you want to eat it is this good for you and this is just such a good picture of what's playing out here because we know for us you know it's not we don't bring animal sacrifices and we don't bring taco sacrifices of worship though if you want to donate tacos you know your pastors would welcome that just no burrito juice please um but for us, you know, in Christ, do you know this Romans 12 1 says that we are called living sacrifices of worship, that by the mercies of God, we uh, uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our worship. And I just want to ask you, church, are you, are you, are you giving your leftovers to God? Are you giving him the scraps? Are you giving him what is not meaningful to you and is not useful to anyone else? Because it's heartless worship our time, our talent, our treasure. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we give our leftovers to God, like the Israelites, we offer up heartless worship. Here's the third thing that heartless worship looks like and means. It's that I care more about what others think than God. I care more about what others think than God. And we see this in verse eight at the end. So it's talking about these lame, sick, evil offerings of worship. And God says at the end of verse eight, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? And the New American Commentary uh, really simply and clearly explained what's happening here. That ultimately, that, that those bringing food to a ruler's table, to a, you know, a local politician or a boss, they would only bring the best available. And if they didn't, it would be because they despised him and cared nothing for his favor. They didn't care about what he thought. Yet the very purpose for offering gifts to a governor was to please him and gain favor. Valuable gifts would declare the glory of the recipient's. Church, do you care more about what people think than God? Are we bringing meals our, our, ourselves as living sacrifices? Are we presenting ourselves as put together as, as, as cool, as, as beautiful, as wealthy, as successful, as, as good, as, as whatever, but at the end of the day we're caring so much about the reputation of what people think about us, but we have no regard for what God actually thinks about us and what God sees inside our hearts. Galatians 1.10 says it this way, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And quite simply, there are many of us in the room, myself included in another struggle of mine through a lot of my story, fearing man more than fearing God, people-pleasing Caring so much what people think about you, but not in the moment thinking about what you say and do, what God thinks about that. And that is also heartless worship. Last thing that heartless worship is, is that my worship and obedience are an obligation. My worship, my obedience, my devotion, they're an obligation. Verse 13, and this could certainly be true for what a lot of us experience says, but you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Right? Like, man, it's just exhausting to check the boxes of religion. It's just exhausting to come to church. Man, the music was long today. Man, the normal guys aren't preaching today. Makes it harder than normal. Man, small group, it's May. I'm so happy that small group's gonna be over. I only really go to that because my spouse makes me, but I'm not gonna tell any, any of those guys anything about my life is your worship and obedience and obligation. There are some of us in the room who are checking the boxes of what we think it means to be a Christian. And so our experience of being a follower of Jesus is one where we are left disappointed, where it feels like an obligation. And I'll just tell you, church, that doesn't shed negatively upon Christ or the way of following Jesus. That is because you're offering up heartless worship. Your worship, your obedience, they're an obligation. And if we are just checking the boxes of being a Christian, but our hearts are not truly in it, we're not giving God our best. We're not giving him honor. We haven't received or recognized his love. It will leave us feeling miserable because it's heartless worship. Quite honestly, I don't mean to be harsh about this, but I stand on the stage most weeks and, and I look out and some of you come every single week and you just look miserable being here. Like, why, why are you here? It's empty worship. It's heartless worship. And the result of heartless worship is this. God wants nothing to do with heartless worship. God wants nothing to do with it. Verses 9 through 10 say that. It says, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Our heartless worship that we bring, God doesn't want it. He's not in it. He said, I'd rather you close the doors. I'd rather you stop. It's useless. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of my time. I don't want it. And more than that, I'm not, I'm not in it. That heartless worship is void of the glory and favor of God, the presence of God. It's not there. The power of God, it's not there. The person of God, it's not there. And that's true for the people of Israel here in Malachi. Malachi 3.1 shows us that the manifest presence of God isn't there. He's not there. And even more than that, do you know what comes after the book of Malachi? It's one last prophetic message, one oracle. Turn from your ways. Turn from your apathy and compromise and disobedience and follow me. And they don't listen. So there's 400 years of Silence. And I just wonder how many of us in the room today are experiencing that silence. Like, man, we just feel like our lives are void of the power, the presence, the love, the character of God. And again, I I say that as a burden, as a conviction to you, but not just that you would leave this place being like, yep, that pastor told me what I already feel. I'm a terrible person. I'm a bad Christian. God doesn't love me. My life is, is no good. Like... I get it, dude, yeah. But I say that to invite you into the alternative, that you don't have to remain in the silence. You don't have to remain in an experience that is absent of the presence and the power of God. Because we know that at the other side of 400 years of silence, what was there? Out of the silence came the roaring lion, That Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died in our place as the sacrificial lamb, as the offering of worship, that by his perfect blood and life that we are washed clean and forgiven. And as a result of that, by faith in Jesus, that the presence of God now dwells in our hearts, the Holy Spirit is available to us, that you don't have to remain in a life of heartless worship, void of the power and presence and person of God, but instead if you would turn to Jesus and embrace what he has done for you, that we now have access to the power, the presence of God. We can live with a life that is marked by his favor, by belonging, that we're not looking for approval in other people because we've got it in him that we're not looking to impress people and to put ourselves together because we can't do it. Jesus did it. There's an alternative, and the alternative is a pure offering of worship because God wants nothing to do with heartless worship. He's not in it. But out of the silence, Jesus came. And just as we sang earlier today, his blood is still speaking, and we are forgiven and, and healed in Romans or, or Malachi 1, eleven and verse 14, it really prophesized prophesies this future reality. Verse eleven says, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. Jump ahead of verse fourteen. God says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And what we see in these verses is two things. One, this future prophesied reality that Jesus fulfilled. He is the great king who came. That through him, that not just Israelites, but Edomites and Jews and Gentiles and Italians and everyone can come to praise the name of our God. We have access to him. And these verses also describe what it looks like for us to respond with a pure heart of worship in light of who we are and what we have in Christ. And so I just want to go through these three things quickly. I want to invite, you know, Carolyn to come on out, play the keys as we prepare to close and just hit these things. The first is to recognize God's greatness, which will lead us to reverence and awe. Church, do you regularly find yourself in awe and reverence of the greatness of God? Do you see his love for you? He loves you. He shouldn't. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it, but he loves you. And he wants you to know that by faith in Jesus, you can have his love. He wants you to know that he is a great God who's over all things. He is honorable. He is worth being afraid of. But you don't have to stay in a place of fear. You can receive his love and, and see his greatness and be brought to reverence and awe. Second, uh, to give God what he deserves. First, fruits in spirit and truth. Give him what He deserves. Our first fruits in spirit and truth. There's this Old Testament principle of first fruits, giving God the first of the animals, the grain, uh, even doughs of bread, uh, oil, and wine, and, and all the fruits of the land. And the New Testament actually says that we are the first fruits of salvation. And so we now offer ourselves up as a first fruit offering of worship which ultimately means giving of ourselves, our best, our all to God in worship. You know, what does it mean for you to give what God deserves, to give him what he deserves, to give him your first, your best? I would encourage you to think about that, to consider what God is calling you to do to really uh, not offer up heartless worship, but to give him your best. Because the result of that, a heart that is gripped by the greatness of God, uh, one who gives to God what he deserves from our hearts an offering of worship, our first, our best, our all, the result is not silence, where God is silent and wants nothing to do with heartless worship, that a pure heart that comes through Jesus, that that heart receives a blessing. We receive a blessing. And maybe you hear that initially and you're like, sweet, I wanna receive a blessing. I want money. I want the promotion. I want the things. I want a good life. That's not the blessing though. The blessing is him. The blessing is knowing that, that in our worship in Christ, God delights in it. God inhabits it. And God is with us. His favor marks our life. And and we can know, church, that there is a future that is coming, that is promised to us, where, where the new heavens and the new earth will be there, the new Jerusalem, and we'll be in the presence of God and we'll be made perfect. But you're here, and that's there. Will you let apathy and compromise take you away from the path and lead you to heartless worship? Don't go to the heartless worship in the silence, but in Christ, offer up a pure heart of worship. And um, ultimately, you know, what comes to mind is a song we sing here at Harvest a lot in this season that says, sing like the heavens are waiting. Are you doing that, church? Are you singing like the heavens are waiting? Is your worship, is your life, is your obedience one that would say, man, that person is living and singing and breathing like heaven is waiting for them. And and this isn't just about congregational worship. This is about all of our lives. Do you read the Bible like the heavens are waiting? Do you pray like the heavens are waiting? Do you love your spouse like the heavens are waiting? Do you do your job like the heavens are waiting? Do you rejoice in suffering like the heavens are waiting? Do you steward your money and things like the heavens are waiting? Do you you tell people about Jesus like the heavens are waiting? Would we do that, church? And um, we're going to close in worship. We do that every week, right? But I want to invite you to stand now because honestly what we can do sometimes is pack up our things and look at the closing song as an opportunity to beat the traffic or go to the next thing. But we stay here at Harvest that we don't worship to prepare for the preaching. We preach to become better worshipers because we know the future that is promised is the new heavens and the new earth where we'll be offering up worship for eternity. So church would we'll be seeing like the heavens are waiting. And I want to invite you. This is a song that we normally sing over the church in reflection and repentance. But today, would it be us a declaration from our hearts? God, I'm sorry for offering up heartless worship. God, I'm tired of the silence. I'm tired of the obligation and the misery of a Christian life that is lacking you and your presence. God, thank you for Jesus that in him that I have access to the person and the presence the power of God. Show me yourself, receive my worship, transform my life to be one that is marked by a life of worship and obedience. Let me pray over you and then we'll sing. Father, we come before you now and um, man, may we no longer offer up heartless worship. As we sing, as we go to lunch after this, as we go to a family function, as we go to our jobs, as we go back to our kids, As we return to our spouse, God, would we return to your way and offer up a pure heart of worship and all that we do in Jesus. God, receive it now and use it for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.